You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, everyone, uh, and very warm welcome to the ODI's uh, webinar today. Um, this is the uh, third and fi final series of three webinars that we have been partnering on uh, with CDC Group, uh, and we're delighted to have such a large audience with us today uh, and uh, to meet our uh, fantastic panellists, who I'll introduce in just one moment. Uh, my name is Judith Tyson. I'm a senior research fellow here at the ODI, uh, and I specialise in uh, financial sector development and mobilisation of private finance uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and uh, we'll be discussing that, but also today with a focus on development financial institutions as well, um, who a number of our panellists represent. Um, in terms of housekeeping, uh, we'd really encourage you to send questions, and we're going to have a Q&A at the end. Uh, you can use the um, chat box uh, to send them to me, and then we'll, we'll uh, share them out amongst the panellists. I'm sure everyone's uh, familiar with that uh, today. Uh, we can also use the hashtag, um, a hashtag Innovative Finance, to tweet any questions or comments about the event, uh, and uh, our um, team at the OGI will forward those on. Um, let me uh, introduce our panellists. Uh, we're very thrilled and delighted to have with us today uh, Vera Songwe, um, who's the Executive uh, Secretary of the Economic Commission for Africa, um, and I'm sure it's familiar uh, as one of the leading um, executives in the discussion uh, on the COVID response. Uh, we're also very pleased to have Nick O'Donovan, uh, Donahue, uh, who's Chief Executive of CDC, also formerly um, of, the, of the Gates Foundation, uh, and um, uh, of course CDC is probably one of the most innovative and interesting uh, DFIs on the scene today. Um, we have Soren uh, Peter Anderson, uh, who's General Manager of EDFI, uh, that's European uh, EDFI, which is an industry group representing uh, the interests and concerns of uh, European DFIs um, uh, collectively. And uh, last but not least, we have uh, Chris uh, Egerton Warburton, who's a co CEO and founding partner of Lions Head uh, Global Partners, uh, who are a global, uh, private fund uh, based in Nairobi and very much involved with the uh, capital markets in the region. Um, Vera, maybe we can start with you. I just mentioned that you, you know, you've been very much at the forefront of the discussions, uh, both internationally and within the region, uh, about the response to the pandemic um, over the the last um, nine months. Um, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a view of how you see uh, the, um, the the good points and the bad points in the response um, from the various parties to date. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Judith. Uh, um, let me say good afternoon to everybody with uh, the system. It's very difficult to know what time it is everywhere. Good morning to those who are on the other side of the world. Um, listen, good question. I think let me start with the response of the African countries themselves. African countries, I think, for the first time came out in front of the response to this pandemic. Uh, altogether, African countries have pulled together about $46 billion of their own budgets. Um, to respond to this pandemic. A large chunk of that $46 billion is $26 billion from South Africa, of course, uh, $6 billion from Egypt. These are countries that have been particularly hard hit uh, from the crisis. And so there has been, and then you have, you know, smaller countries like Benin and Togo that decided to give tax holidays um, to the private sector businesses so that they could use some of those resources to respond to the crisis. You have Ghana that has taken charge of all the healthcare workers' insurance. So there has been, I would say, um, a lot of a, a sort of a fiscal response in particular 
uh, by many African countries. Of course, there's been a doubling of some of the social safety net programs. Unfortunately, because a lot of, the, uh, of our economy is informal, it has been very difficult uh, for countries to be able to target you know, those who need uh, some of the help the most. On the international side, uh, the response has mostly come from the IMF. I must congratulate the IMF immediately after the crisis. They, you know, for the 19 poorest low-income countries on the continent, they wrote off the debt um, to the tune of about something $228 million. Those countries were able to immediately use those resources again to respond to the crisis. I think uh, so far we have heard about from the PRGT disbursements, which is the IMF fast disbursing uh, facility, over $20 billion uh, of resources have been disbursed. And I think the IMF has really done a fantastic job in terms of working both with middle, some middle income countries, uh, I name again, South Africa, Egypt, uh, Morocco, that have had access to the IMF facilities. The G20, on the other hand, um, worked on the debt service suspension initiative, which is an initiative which is actually born out of uh, African finance ministers asking for a stay on interest payments to both my bilateral, multilateral and private sector debt. Um, we were able to get the bilateral uh, part going. Um, to date, it has delivered somewhere in the other of $4.9 billion of, uh, of relief to the continent. There is a second round of that that's happening, which goes on to June 2021. We're hoping that it goes on till June, until December 2021. So that's the big extension. But I think the big, big thing that we've all been asking for is the special joint rights and, and additional release. Africa is asking for $100 billion every year for the next three years to actually you know, respond to this crisis in a solid and systematic way. And the special drawing rights will provide the kind of uh, uh, relief that is needed. Remember that it's not just that, you know, this is the large, biggest crisis we've had in a century, but more importantly, there is depreciation happening across uh, the countries. We're now talking about the vaccine. How do countries get access to the vaccine if they don't have sufficient foreign currency? And that's why for us, the SDRs become a very important part of that conversation, not just getting the vaccines, but also continuing to get some working capital as Africa launches the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement. We are hoping to use that to revive our economies, but we need that. And finally, of course, there is the conversation around what we do with the private sector and how we crowd the private sector in. Uh, the Economic Commission for Africa, working with many of us on this call and in other places, is working on a liquidity and sustainability facility, which will help reduce the cost of uh, market capital so that more countries have access. We've just seen uh, Ivory Coast go to the markets. Uh, we're hoping that more African countries can regain access to markets, but probably and hopefully at cheaper rates. Thank you very much. So we've seen reasonable responses, a few places maybe where we could have seen more, but overall pretty good. But we, but you'd certainly like to see more SDRs and a sort of longer term uh, financing over the next three years as well. Um, can I um, could I um, take you back to to the issue about the fiscal response? I mean, obviously, um, you know, an implication of that is the level of um, uh, indebtedness that um, uh, uh, national governments are incurring in terms of uh, financing that fiscal response, and the vast majority of the fund funding, I understand, is uh, is on debt rather than uh, on a. Um, uh, a grant basis. I was wondering if you could comment on what you feel about the debt sustainability situation of some of the uh, countries across the region. Um, and uh, I think what we might be fair to say is sort of intransigence in terms of uh, private investors uh, on debt forgiveness. Um, three things. I think before we got into the crisis, we had about five countries that were already in a, a debt, debt distress environment. Of the five countries, you have uh, Eritrea, South Sudan, Zimbabwe that are really 
sort of outliers because their problem is long-standing and it's a question of arrears. Then you had Gab uh, Gabon and I think Mozambique. Um, then in the category of countries that were in high risk of their distress, um, we had a number of about 12 countries in, in that category, which included, of course, Angola, Cape Verde, Zambia, uh, and a few others. I think what we are seeing is, you know, I think the big question actually on uh, conversation on debt is really in those 12 countries mm. is, is, you know, how is that split going to happen? Uh, three things are going to determine those splits. One of them is if they have much more of that debt as Eurobond, very expensive debt, or uh, um, uh, other private sector debt. Of course, there is debt from non-Paris club and non-concessional lenders, which you have raised, which becomes an important issue. We need to look at that and see uh, you know, what, the, what is done around that conversation. There are, as I said, 12 countries in that category. Africa has 54 countries. So if you had five, uh, 12 plus five, that's about 17 countries, five in already debt distress and 12 in high risk of debt distress, there is a huge number of countries that are still, uh, and, and this is where the Cote d'Ivoire of the world fall in, this is where the Egypts of the world fall, that had good macroeconomic fundamentals before the crisis. And, and what we are trying to do and what we're working with them and doing is to say, how can we provide them with the liquidity that they need so that this crisis doesn't take them back much further. This is a one uh, a one in a lifetime occurrence. It's an occurrence that was not caused by these countries. And so I think as we have the conversation around uh, uh, debt and the debt sustainability, uh, we do need to then make sure that we are not putting all the countries together in one basket. Now, I must welcome the G20 Common Framework for Debt Resolution because what it does is it begins to provide us with some clarity about what needs to be done. Of course, we have the Zambia case, as you mentioned rightly, uh, where there has been a sort of uh, 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 uncoordinated, unruly attempt um, to see how you begin to bring the Chinese and the private sector and the concessional uh, lenders together to have a conversation. This is not the way to go. We have some good examples as uh, a la Ecuador. We are seeing now what the IMF is doing with Angola. I think that hopefully the, the new uh, common framework begins to provide more visibility, more clarity for countries, those 12 countries and, and amongst them, which ones want to then address the issue. Uh, you know, when you get there, you're in a solvency uh, question and the question then becomes, you know, what do you need to do? How do you need to restructure? Who do you bring around the table? And, and I think the international community is seized with the idea that we do need a framework to do that in an orderly, in, an, uh, in a coordinated manner. But I also want to continue to stress that this is not the burden of all African countries. There are still some good performing African countries that need to continue to access liquidity so that they can continue to grow. And those ones, I think we need not put together in the sort of overall debt conversation and the debt basket as we're talking. And, and, and you know, if you look at the debt conversation, sometimes there is an unfair sort of, you know, conversation around the debt of the African countries. I mean, the European countries have never had the levels of debt they have today, uh, amazing amounts of debt that they have, but they're they backed by, you know, the EU and the strong hard currency. And so interest rates are quite low and they continue to go to the market. This does not mean that, you know, Italy, Spain, Portugal uh, don't need, you know, robust macroeconomic uh, programs. And I think this is the question is what new programs, what kind of, of fiscal uh, stimulus programs do we need, first of all, to get these countries to grow out of the crisis and then, you know, to get into a stage where we get we begin to see long time, long term recovery. 
Yeah, I th personally thought it was quite optimistic that we saw, um, you know, the new issuance um, from the Ivory Coast because, um, you know, we've, we're seeing that sort of return to the market. And I as you point out, a more nuanced view about the countries that are strong and having a pretty good prospects as opposed to some of those that have uh, debt sustainability issues that need to be addressed. Um, maybe I could ask you a slightly different question. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the difficulty of um, providing support for the informal sector and particularly for the poorest in the region. And there's been, I think, quite a lot of concern about the ability of sort of macro level policies to reach them um, and um, I, we've got a question too talking about the needs for job support uh, I was wondering if you comment about you know on a more medium-term view what sort of policy um, responses you would like to see to support uh, and continue long-term growth but also to make that more inclusive in terms of uh, the informal sector and employment creation I think three things that at least we are trying to do uh, at the Economic Commission for Africa the first one is to look at you know how do we you know, finally, finally uh, begin to target this vulnerable informal sectors of the economy and bring them in. We have partnered with seven of the largest telco companies on the continent now um, to be able to see whether we can identify. And so we have about 710 million cell phone numbers uh, to whom we can send messages to different people just to get a sense of, do you have a job? Don't you still have a job? Do you need support? And we're hoping that we can bring these people into some kind of a database where then by country we can begin to assess them. So that's the first thing we're doing. We launched the program. We now have 36 countries on the continent that have agreed and have signed up to the program. It's actually already started working in Congo. I think today it will start in Ghana and by the end of the year we should have seven countries already. Where, and the idea here is to say, you know, you have a wife who was probably a, a seamstress in the market and a husband who was a taxi driver, most of them earning a sort of sufficiently decent income to send their kids to school and, you know, have a decent living, but none of them registered into any formal systems in the country. With COVID, markets are closed, nobody's taking taxes anymore. These two people have fallen into poverty, but we don't know where they are. And I think that the African uh, uh, Commission's information, communications information platform, ACIP is what we call it, is the idea is to say if we go into each country and we can send messages to people like this and they can tell us we exist, we used to have a good job before or a sufficient decent job, but now we need assistance, we will start building databases for these people. And so that's the first question is bringing them into some kind of a formal system. Your second question, what do we do? I think we now have the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement. For that African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement to work and work effectively, one of the things we're going to need is logistics, transportation, you know, ensuring that we can improve our road networks, our train networks, energy investment. So there's a huge amount, I think, of labor-intensive investments that we can begin to look at. Of course, agriculture and the whole uh, possibilities there. Uh, you know, one of the big issues and one of the frights of the crisis is inflation. And we need to look at those sectors where, you know, prices are going up. One of them on the continent, we just launched something called the Africa Price Watch, is food prices. And so if we can double, triple, you know, land, we're doing that in Guinea, in Senegal, that is being put on the production and employ people in those areas, it will be particularly important. And finally, of course, is the ICT sector. We just finished last week a two-week training of young, 3,000 young girls and coding, amazing innovations, amazing things. They are all coding, becoming their own, uh, hoping that they can become their own heads of business. And they are now looking at CDC, we will come to you for some funding. Uh, but, but I think that, you know, we had the first five innovations from this uh, 
uh, program, two-week coding program, just amazing using the internet of things, using artificial intelligence to see how you can solve society's problems, problems that they're facing themselves or their families are facing. And I think that's the other exit is to see how we can leverage better technology uh, to ensure that we can create more jobs. So it's, it's, first of all, identifying the vulnerable, then looking at the whole logistics, infrastructure, energy, roads, transport, you know, where we can, you know, really create a lot of jobs and then looking at ICT training, building and creating those skills for new markets and new jobs. Yeah, th yeah thank you. I think certainly the, the level of innovation we're seeing around the, the digital economy in the region is exceptional. Um, I know it's been accelerated, of course, as it has elsewhere, but it's a really great news story for, for uh, right across Africa. Um, uh, Vera, I know, I know that you need to leave because you've got other responsibilities. I wonder if you'd just like to make any final remarks or um, other, any other comments? I'd listen. I mean, I have another 15 minutes, so maybe I'll just listen and then um, come in before I leave. Thank okay. you. Okay, great. Uh, maybe we can switch to uh, to Nick then. Um, Nick, thank you very much for for joining us. Um, obviously, CDC is um, uh, you know is is one of the leading uh, DFIs globally, and particularly uh, it has a mandate that focuses exclusively on uh, low income countries. Um, and uh, I think it would be fair to say too, CDC has led a lot of innovation, uh, particularly through some of its catalyst funds, um, uh, about investing in those sectors. I was wondering if you could could give us a, a sort of your um, uh, take on the the landscape post COVID, uh, particularly about whether the prospects are are significantly damaged uh, for your investments, but also for private finance um, in LICs, and and what's you know what's CDC's take on it. Oh, uh, Nick, I think you're on mute. <laughs> this is the... Um it's the catch going to be catchphrase of the uh, pandemic on the webinar, isn't it? Do you want me? Can you hear me now? <laughs> oh, I think my headset is not working. Sorry. So thank you. Thanks, Julie. Good morning, everybody. Um, so yeah, look. I think the first thing to remember when you think about COVID and you think about its effect on 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 um, on, on fragile economies is that every crisis is the same uh, from a financial perspective, and when you when you think about commercial investors. What happens is people immediately take risk off. They immediately move away from those countries that are furthest away that they perceive the, uh, as, as most risky. Um, and I think that's why development finance. So you get this great flow outflow of money from from those countries. And I think that's why development finance institutions are so important because we have the opportunity to be counter cyclical. We have an opportunity to fill that gap, particularly in terms of of, of uh, liquidity for sort of day to day uh, uh, business. And so I think, uh, you know, if you look at what's happened in COVID, the, the DFIs have done a reasonably good job of filling that gap. And of course, it's also important to remember that even before COVID happened, uh, we had um, uh, the amount of capital flowing into particularly Africa and Africa, the continent that has the greatest distance to travel in terms of achieving the SDGs. But the capital that was flowing into Africa was well below what was needed if we're to, do, if we're to successfully meet those uh, sustainable development goals. Um, so we had an issue before COVID, and obviously COVID has, ma has magnified that issue. Uh, we've had um, a, a lot of uh, 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 time and effort uh, uh, and commitment made to the area of blended finance, and I think blended finance 
has made a difference. And we've seen some very creative uses of sort of concessionary tools together with more commercial capital uh, in a very sort of uh, innovative way, particularly in areas like climate and SME financing. But, you know, even with blended finance, and if you look at the recent data from, um, from Convergence, you know, we're seeing 50 to 60 deals a year. We're seeing 10 billion, 10 to 15 billion dollars in volume. We're seeing only 40% of that actually coming from commercial investors and Im impact investors as opposed to the DFIs themselves. Mm -hmm. So we're certainly not seeing a sort of a billions to trillions. With, uh, uh, we're seeing billions staying at billions. Um, so I think it's unrealistic to think that blended finance will be a solution. So the solution needs to be needs to have three components to it. It needs to have speed, it needs to have scale, it needs to have simplicity. And so that's what we've been trying to do at CDC, focus on preserving what the work we've done already, because obviously uh, we we uh, we have interest in in, in investments in 1,200 companies. Uh, we want to see them survive, uh, strengthen uh, particularly financial systems, particularly by providing liquidity, and then help to rebuild as we come out of uh, as we come out of COVID. And you could do that in in quite simple ways through areas like trade finance, which has been a big part of the response from organizations like CDC and, and IFC. And then over time. Uh, uh, then you can become more. You can get. You can uh, um, look at more complex and more blended, more solutions that uh, 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 like blended finance. Yeah, th thanks, Nick. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting you say you mentioned about blended finance. I mean, of course, there has certainly been some successes, but the you know the aspiration uh, from the you know the bill the the billions to trillions is, is is a long way off. I think across all all institutions globally. Um, and of course, we're also entering an environment where um, the you know international aid flows may not be as great, or certainly you're not going to be growing. Um, could you expand a little bit on on the your comments there about the domestic financial sector? Uh, you, of course, you you know as you mentioned, there's been a lot of liquidity support to address the immediate crisis. But in the long term, uh, other things that DFIs can do to um, uh, develop a faster, more um, a deeper uh, financial systems domestically. Yes, I think, look, it's, it's, it's absolutely critical um, that in the long term we have domestic, uh, 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 robust uh, uh, domestic capital markets, uh, particularly in Africa. Uh, and I think there is um, uh, more that, that organizations like CDC and the other development finance institutions can do. Some of it, I think, is about sort of helping to build a sort of intermediary layer. Um, and so you, uh, so the work that... Uh, organizations like the IFC is doing and upstreaming the work that FSDA is doing in terms of helping to develop markets. I think that's 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 important, uh, helping, as I say, to fund intermediaries. To some extent, the traditional banks and PE funds uh, that many of us have funded in the past have not provided the answers to, uh, it, to uh, you know, pr provided uh, uh, successfully provided large amounts of capital in these countries. So we also have to be much more innovative. And, and I think we are very, very correctly talked about the importance of technology and IT and, and more innovative fintech solutions that can sort of disintermediate traditional sources of, fi uh, of finance. I think these are really, uh, you know, if we're going to really, uh, I, I don't think that the local domestic capital markets in Africa are going to be built in exactly the same way as they're built in developed markets, particularly in a world that we live in now where we've got so much opportunity to exploit new, new technologies and new ways of doing things and innovate to do things better. And so I think it's a critical function of development finance institutions to take a risk to invest in those, in those um, new solutions and, and, and innovation solutions.
So you see an opportunity for sort of uh, uh, much more granular quote capital markets rather than the sort of uh, critical mass capital markets we've seen, say, in Asia, developing Asia and um, some of the advanced economies. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, to yeah. I think there's certainly. I, I was very surprised um, uh, in Kenya personally when when they um, issued some government bonds on the on the mobile phones, and I thought, well, that you know the the, the amount of uh, money that would be mobilised through that is not going to is going to be trivial. But actually, it was a huge success. It was very surprising that people on the street actually you know put in some relatively small amounts and collectively it was quite significant. Yeah, look, I think that is exactly right. Yeah. That the, the, those are the solutions that are going to make a yeah. difference in the future, and they're not the same as the ones we've seen in developed countries or even the more recently developing countries. They're they're enabled by technology that's developed in the last five years. Are there other areas of innovation that you think will be important for the future? I mean, uh, outside of uh, fintech. Uh, well, I, look, I think well, the from a private private sector perspective, what the sort of technology revolution is doing is it's enabling. Uh, 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 entrepreneurs to build sustainable businesses with a whole new customer base um, because it's cheaper to access and cheaper to, uh, to, to run those businesses. So across the board, and again, I think Vera made this point, across the board, um, uh, uh, technology has the uh, presents the opportunity to really make a significant uh, uh, to uh, have a significant uh, uh, significantly change the development um, sort of uh, uh, guide path in, in Africa and we've got to be supporting it and investing in it. Yeah, I think certainly there's quite a lot of research that also shows it, it um, relates back to the problem that we were discussing with Vera about how to reach the bottom of the pyramid because of yeah. the very widespread uh, uptake of mobile technology, including uh, you know some of the poorest households. So there's a lot of uh, prospects there. Mm. Um, uh, Nick, I've got quite a few questions coming through uh, from the panel as well. Let, let me um, let me ask you one. Um, uh, or, um, one of the questions I have is, I sort of summarise this, is about what are the barriers and unfavourable levers, I think, remain in place? What are the, what are the big blockers? Um, I guess really what they're asking here is, is, is there major things that could be done in the policy environment, either by, uh, you know, DFIs or IFIs, um, that could, um, you know, create a, uh, a, you know, a, a, a step up in terms of the response, particularly around supporting long-term uh, in, uh, economic growth in the region? Look, I think it's it's. I think first we've got to um, uh, recognize that biggest challenge to or uh, to investing in Africa in many countries in Africa is um, it lies sort of domestically. It's not just the lack of a domestic capital market, but it's making sure that we've got uh, responsible macroeconomic policies, we've got stable fiscal policy, we've got reasonable interest rates, we've got uh, stable currencies. We've got governments that are proactively supporting the private sector and see the private sector as an, as an important route to, uh, to growth in those countries. Uh, I don't think that exists everywhere. It, it certainly exists in more countries than it has in the past. And I think one of the, one of the really encouraging things is you can look at certain countries now uh, and you can see sort of role models for, for private sector-led growth. And so I think that's, that's very important. And I think our, our role is, as you know, DFI is to, is to support those countries. I think we do, uh, you know, we do have a, 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 an obligation to our shareholders to preserve and an ideally earn a return on our capital. So we've got to be conscious of that. We can't ignore that. Um, and um, uh, uh, so, um, uh, but as I said, I think increasingly um, we have uh, uh, more and more examples in Africa of countries that are pursuing a private sector-led route to, route to route to growth, and our job is to support that through capital. 
Yes, I'd say I'd, I'd agree with that. There's particularly in the last decade, we've seen quite significant differentiation. Those countries who have achieved, you know, macroeconomic and political stability and you know sound basic environments have really seen their growth take off, and yes. they have been also less affected in this current environment as well. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, those fundamentals are always uh, always uh, essential. Um, so maybe I could turn to you. Uh, you you um, heard uh, some of Nick's comments about you know his um, his uh, uh, views from CDC's platform. Of course, you represent uh, um, uh, the European. European DFIs uh, collectively in your organisation. I was wondering if you'd like to um, uh, comment. Um, maybe we could pick up on the the issue about how to how to support longer term growth or recovery in the region, uh, both in terms of, sort of opportunities but also risks. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 of course, it's evident as as Nick explained that the job of DFIs during the immediate response has been to stay put and be present to lead um, other investors back into the continent uh, during the recovery. And I also very much agree on, on the points about DFIs need to see where they can help speed up economic transformation that will, that will follow in the recovery. And I'm, I'm not sure we are always, as, as DFIs and donor agencies, uh, working with the governments in a sufficient sufficiently strategic way not just at the macro level, but also at, at, at the micro level of getting policy reforms right to help speed up these economic transformations that, uh, that DFIs are willing to, uh, to help finance. And I think just a couple of, a couple of good examples. I, I, I think the, um, the financial inclusive financial services is, is absolutely a critical um, area, like Nick explained, with a lot of technological development and a lot of potential to unlock uh, private institutional finance. Um, and it's also a very complicated sector to regulate and get uh, equitable outcomes. So I think that needs a lot of attention from us if we as DFIs uh, want to be able to finance this rapid uh, transformation. Uh, we need to work very closely with policymakers. Um, another, another area, which is quite obvious because it's been a major area of uh, investment for DFIs uh, for more than a decade, but sustainable energy renewables is absolutely critical for the uh, for the african continent to uh, have a strong recovery uh, both because it it, it is um, the type of investment that can be very helpful to create um, economic activity and job opportunities during the recovery but also because it really depends uh, it, it depends a lot on public and private finance to come together so i i think we have to see how we can be extremely strategic about these key sectors and get what we do as DFIs with our private uh, co-financiers uh, to really sync up also with what some of the uh, multilateral public development banks and regional institutions uh, are doing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We've introduced the the, the topic of uh, you know the green economy and, the, and of course climate finance um, and coming into COP twenty six. Of course, it's, it's very much on the agenda. Um, one of the interesting things for the region in in Africa though is around the green bond market. And of course, we've seen a huge surge globally in the green bond market. But Africa largely has not participated. I think they've got something like thirteen green bond issuances at the moment. Um, is there things that DFIs could be doing to support um, you know greater um, participation by the region in, in green finance? Yes, I mean, of course, the long term, if we talk about billions to trillions, um, one way of putting it is that DFIs are in the business of using billions to catalyze the trillions. Um, but we have to realize that it the um, it, it's not just the, um, 
availability of assets that determines whether the trillions are unlocked and flow into the African continent. It's really also the overall risk profile of the economies and the investment opportunities that we present to them. So I do think as DFIs, we should get better over time at taking some of the assets that we have helped finance and getting them packaged in a way that they can be financed uh, through green bond issues and, and other uh, public securities. And uh, I think we are reaching a critical scale in renewables, for instance, to to get closer to being able to do that. But it's been uh, it, it's been difficult to do uh, so far. But I I suspect I suspect that this um, uh, success of of uh, of getting uh, public bond issuance going or green bond issuance going will also depend on the risk perception of private mm -hmm. institutions. And so I think. DFIs cannot promise to do it just on our own. It has to be combined with the kinds of policy reforms uh, that um, that uh, institutional investors are looking for. Mm -hmm. Any particular uh, wish lists uh, for COP26 uh, in terms of the outcome for um, developing countries? Well, I, I, I do think for we we actually just as as European DFIs and 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 with strong leadership from CDC issued a number of commitments to align our financing with the Paris Agreement, uh, go to uh, go to net zero by 2050, and uh, and really align our activities with these priorities, and um, and and I I very much hope that uh, that we can have a very strong alignment of uh, of uh, wider alignment of public uh, finance institutions to. To support that, um, to um, uh, to to really drive more finance for um, for renewables, but also for other sectors that can speed up the uh, the green transformation uh, of the economy in in Africa, with with great outcomes also for energy access and so on uh, coming alongside it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think it's a, there's obviously a path that you're outlining there towards both um, you know sustainable growth, but also significant growth uh, in terms of poverty alleviation. So both critical Absolutely, goals. Absolutely. Yeah. It goes hand in hand. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you, Son. Um, Chris, let me turn to you. Uh, um, you're, you're slightly different from our other speakers in the sense that you're you're at the at the uh, in the at, I would say the, the coal face, as we say in the UK, um, in terms of your work um, uh, at the fund and particularly your work in uh, Nairobi and, and in capital markets. Um, I was wondering if you'd like to speak a little bit about um, you know some of the the the, the uh, achievements, of course, of your fund, but also some of the difficulties, and particularly in engaging investors, um, uh, both uh, domestically and internationally, in in the issuances that uh, your fund makes. So, um, so thank you, thank you very much for for having me. Um, I hope I'm not too different. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, Nick and Nick and Soren can can comment on that. Um, Look, the the ALCB, which is one of the funds that we manage, um, we we also manage two uh, renewable energy funds, um, was really established by um, by the German government and then joined by the British government, with the focus of saying how do we get the domestic capital markets to work for the corporate sector, and. Um, this this year has been a um, you know sort of a real test to see whether that thesis could survive um, you know in a in a sort of firestorm as it were. Um, there's definitely been some winners and losers. 
and um, you know, be wrong of me to say that um, we, we haven't been impacted by, by COVID, we have. Um, but I'm delighted that actually the, you know, the number of credits that, um, that, that have come into distress is, has been um, a very small part of our portfolio. Um, in, in the area of three or four percent, which I think people would say with a portfolio that is exclusively linked to, uh, linked to, to African corporates, um, is, is pretty remarkable. That demonstrates two things in our mind. One, that, um, you know, a lot of Africa is less risky than, um, the risk premiums and, and the ratings and the market would imply that it is. But also, there is a big difference between companies' ability and, and capacity to pay in local currency relative to foreign currency. And we've certainly seen an uptick in interest um, with, the, um, with the depreciations that we've seen across the continent where people suddenly say, oh, my goodness, dollar debt is not as cheap as, as potentially it looks. Um, you know, I'm old enough, sadly, to have lived through the Asia crisis. Um, and I think back then in, in 96, 97, Asia just got an extraordinary shock, having lived for a decade before on cheap dollar debt, that, um, you know, currencies didn't stay stable forever. And you really saw a mindset shift in Asia. Um, that was the beginning of, of, of the Asian economies developing their current account surpluses. And... Africa, um, you know, Dambisa would say, uh, has had two strong currencies for, for too long. Um, but, but, but I think this transition to um, properly pricing uh, products, properly pricing power, et cetera, linked to, to local currency as opposed to foreign currency um, and not persuading yourself that you're living on, um, on cheap power as long as the currency doesn't depreciate. Um, will will lead us to a much more sustainable um, space. Now, you know, our fund is still tiny. I mean, we've 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 invested over two hundred million. We've got just over one hundred and thirty million of um, of bonds uh, that, that we're invested in. Now, we co-finance, and and um, we've we, we've seen nearly five times our capital get redeployed. So um, there's been over a, a billion dollars flowing into this, but we're at a billion, not a trillions. And so the key for us is how do we continue to get scale? How do we get um, transactions to, to increase in scale? The remobilization of domestic pension funds um, is critically important. And there we have a little bit of a tension with um, the domestic governments because um, as, as Vera alluded to, you know, a lot of these governments are under fiscal pressure and uh, they would love, very much love those domestic savings to be redeployed into uh, the sovereign bucket uh, as opposed to, to, to flowing into the, the private sector. So um, we see this sort of bridge that needs to happen. That's where the international capital is needed and definitely helps. Um, but, um, you know, I'm going to sound like a broken record here. You know, we feel that it's funds, fund managers that should be uh, taking the currency risk, managing that currency risk, um, as opposed to to corporates um, that that in truth are, are taking a sort of hedge fund type FX position, um, somewhat um, sometimes um, you know without really thinking about it. 
um, and 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 you know you only then realize that um, as Warren Buffett said when the, when the tide goes up. Indeed, yes. <laughs> let me let me challenge you a little bit though, Chris, on your, on your comments about the the financial system because I I think um, you know it would be fair to say that uh, African banking sector has been 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 robust. I mean, we've certainly seen a contraction in in lending, un, un, unsurprisingly, but we certainly are a long way from a systemic crisis. And, and some of the reforms, uh, you know, post two hundred eight, particularly implementation of Basel three and the capital strengthening in the banking sector, uh, I think it would be fair to say has paid off and been a success. But is it too soon to tell? Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, MPLs um, are relatively limited right now, uh, but is that um, is that not situation not going to worsen over the next um, 12, 24 months? I mean, Judith, I'm going to say something a little bit controversial here, so feel free to mute me and, and, and kick me out of the... I mean, you know, the reason that you've seen um, sort of muted responses is that, you know, most people on the continent don't have access to any debt. Uh. Um, and where we've seen challenges has been in some of the... Um, uh, what one would say is the, the, new, uh, the new lending banks um, or, or non-banking financial institutions um, who have been trying to break into this market. Now, I'm acutely sensitive, and this is the place where I beat up our guys the most because I've seen what happened in India, and I think there's a very fine line between giving people the most amazing thing on the planet. And I remember when Barclays gave me my mortgage to buy my house, I felt like I'd won the lottery. Um, I couldn't believe that someone would lend me lots of money, enable me to get keys to a house on the back of, you know, my 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 job. Uh, so debt has an incredibly empowering um, ability, but um, it's equally incredibly destructive. And if um, if people are, are lend money um, at, with the, without, you know, job security, et cetera, et cetera, then um, you can you can really have have problems. So for us, um, the key challenge is always trying to push these institutions to say we we want you to be active, we want you to be building your loan books, but it's got to be got to be done responsibly, and that's just very very hard. I mean, people should understand that that getting that balance right is incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard here in the UK. Um, you know, you, you see it with people getting into 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 debt um, here in the UK. So picture it in less sophisticated markets. Um, but to that degree, I feel that the shock of the crisis um, in Africa, the fact that it hasn't had a bigger impact um, to some degree is not something we should be proud of. It's, it's part of the fact that these markets are uh, very undersupplied with with capital, but they, you know, the crazy thing is, despite that, they're paying the highest rates for anybody in the world. So, you know, somewhere there's a disconnect there. Somewhere the, um, you, you know, where we do need to help bring rates down. A chunk of that, um, and I don't know who's on this call. So again. Somebody may be upset, but is the sovereigns realizing that if you run a substantial fiscal deficit, then you will definitionally push up interest rates, which squeezes the private sector and the whole chain continues. And we need the African governments to realize that um, you know, if they can bring their, um, their fiscal more in balance, 
that that will reduce interest rates, reduce real rates, and you'll get the catalysis of the private sector coming and, and responding. Um, but when you know you've got desperate poverty in countries, et cetera, et cetera, it's a very hard balance to to, to fit for a uh, for a finance minister to to think. Well, if I cut my spending, I'm actually going to increase my my growth. And you know, I know that CDC really pioneered this. Um, but Soren will tell me that. Um, you know, the, the European DFIs do exactly the same thing. But at the end of the day, when we talk about countries being over indebted, it's, I kind of actually think it's the wrong way around. Relative to the size of these economies, they're fundamentally under indebted. Their problem is that they are massively um, in, inable, in, incapable, or they're, they're raising incredibly low levels of taxation. And if your revenue side is, is, pathetically small, then yeah, you are over indebted. And so the focus that, that institutions like CDC have had on, you know, what these, what's happening to jobs, but what's happening to tax revenues is critically important. Get those revenues up and Africa's under indebted and the capital would, would, would flow in. Um, but Nick may want to, or sorry, may want to come in and, and bash me over the head if, if what I've just said is. Is, is controversial. I think it goes back really to Nick's point around, you know, um, macroeconomic management, um, and these fiscal issues are, are tough because, as you point out, there's also a significant problem with um, with uh, you know tax mobilisation, particularly in informal economies. But also, uh, I would personally add that in in economies that are fundamentally poor, and there isn't actually very much to tax in that regard, and therefore there's also so you know only a limit to how far you can push tax collection as well. Uh, but the sheer difficulty of identifying a tax base is. Is tough and it's a kind of vicious circle for for governments in the region in terms of their ability to raise raise uh, um, debt that can that is sustainable. Maybe we can use that because uh, you know the ratio as you know of taxes as opposed to GDP is probably the critical one for them. Mm. I'd also yeah. think there's quite a lot of evidence too about your comments about microfinance and the balance between responsible lending to households who essentially have no very little income and no assets. Um, and uh, you know the ability to facilitate improved livelihoods is also an important one. Okay, Christopher, thanks very much. Maybe um, we can um, uh, look at some of the questions that have come in. Um, uh, guys, let me know if there's a question that you would like to take in particular. Um, so you're welcome to talk to that. But maybe let me let sorry, let me pick one off for you, uh, which is um, a question around: Is there uh, an opportunity for DFIs to be more pro uh, anti-cyclical in their their responses? Um, I would have said you've done a reasonable job uh, in this crisis, but maybe you'd like to comment about, about, about whether you see that as your role, uh, and if so, whether more more could be done. Well, it's absolutely uh, our role when the crisis first uh, hits, and as Nick said, uh, it's risk off for all private investors. It's definitely the job of DFIs not to uh, not to have a behavior where we try to recede or or, or go away and and of course I, th I think as DFIs we we were quite successful in in uh, being very present with clients uh, to respond to their immediate needs but also to continue to serve the pipelines uh, that we have so I think so far so good for this year I think within the limited capacity that at least the European DFIs have had I think. Uh, we, we still don't have the final numbers, but I, I think it has looked um, it has looked quite good and probably better than it did uh, during the financial crisis uh, in two thousand and eight to nine. Um, 
of course, the difficulty right now is that the uncertainty that that exists about whether this is going to be whether there's going to be a recovery in 2021 or, or there's going to be a continued crisis or even an escalating crisis. And and frankly, I think I mean it's it's very difficult when we don't know more about how the trajectory of the pandemic will go in in these countries to to say exactly um, uh, what the long term uh, response and trends will uh, will look like. But I think the DFIs and and cru quite crucially also the shareholders, the governments that own the DFIs, have been extremely determined to be uh, to be present and counter-cyclical. And, and Nick, I'm sure that goes for for CDC as well. Nick, would you like to make a comment um, in response to Soren? Uh, yeah, look, I, I completely agree with what Soren has said, and and uh, it is absolutely the job of the de development finance community to fill the gap. Where during a crisis like this, and I think you're right, um, Judith. That I, I think uh, overall uh, the um, and certainly from what I understand was true during the financial crisis. I think the development finance community has stood up more quickly, more effectively, and and um, to try to provide uh, essential funding. Um, so it's 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 um, uh, but as but again, as Soren says, in the long term. This is about the same development issues that existed before COVID. The same, you know, we've still got 600 million people that ha don't have access to power in Africa. We still need to create 10 to 20 million new jobs a year just to just to sort of stay, you know, uh, um, uh, stay where we are. Those problems are, are uh, still exist. So going back to rebuilding and going back to what we did, I think, effectively before COVID and the issues that we focused on uh, before COVID is is as important now as it was a year ago yeah thank you yeah uh, i think it was interesting actually you know after the um crisis in 2008 there was a lot of criticism of both the world bank and the imf about the, the speed with which they dispensed funds and they did um redesign a number of facilities and i think vera uh, mentioned the imf's uh, rapid response facilities but they did uh, i was on a call last week with some of the central bankers and they do they do seem to have done better uh, at getting money out quickly uh, on this occasion, so again, it's a significant improvement in the in the architecture that we have. Um, um, I mean, Judith, can I just add to to what Soren and 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 Nick just said? Um, I mean, what what I've seen from our client base of, on on the sort of advisory side is that this has been a really good um, this has been a good crisis for the DFIs, and, and why I say that is that the companies that had DFI support. Um, have been able to get uh, more capital. And th that has been very clearly evidenced. And so therefore what you've seen is companies that had gone through the pain, and if anybody tells you it's not painful, they're, they're, they're lying, but have gone through the pain of getting their, you know, aligning themselves uh, and, and working out how to work with the, with the DFIs, um, it's it's they were the ones who who got um, access to liquidity, and what what I think people have equally seen is it's incredibly hard for the DFIs, and you know maybe this COVID thing is once every hundred years. God, let's hope it is. But it's very hard to onboard a totally new client in a crisis. And so I think we are going to see, and, and I'm getting a lot of incoming phone calls from people saying, okay, I get it now. I'm willing to go through that pain and get on board with, um, you know, with one or more DFIs because they've seen that um, when the crisis comes, 
these guys are there and they will support their investees. And, and, and that I think is, uh, is, is, is great to see and, and, uh, and, and evidence that, um, that people really, now they're really seeing why they went through that pain. Yeah, and, uh, and of that sort of interaction between DFIs and the private sector and private finance, which is exactly the sort of synergy you would like to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I could just comment, um, I, I think there is uh, something we observe as DFIs um, that uh, that relates to what uh, what Edge is explaining that um, that we have we have probably seen or we have seen the client portfolios um be um be more resilient in the face of the crisis than we first expected or first dared to expect uh, in in uh, at the beginning of the year um and um and and we don't believe it just has to do with with uh, the clients that we have being uh, being uh, uh, on good relationship terms with dfis but we also believe that the way that DFIs now work with um, making the companies more resilient, having stronger uh, environmental and social and governance uh, standards that they work to being more focused on the impact that they deliver in their community. We believe that this, this increases the resilience and the quality of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the private enterprises that we work with. And it's a little bit similar to the discussion that you see in, in public financial markets that highly uh, ESG rated companies have have been more resilient in the crisis overall than companies that that have not had the same focus on um, on on working to high standards and I think we are learning something about DFIs um, uh, about how to uh, how to make sure that our that we can have clients that are as resilient in a crisis as possible yeah. so another example yeah. of the sort of the hard work of the of laying solid foundations yeah. has paid off uh, in terms of the ESG and, yeah. that, and that kind of due diligence and, and soundness in your business model. Yeah. But I think, Judith, if I just add to what Edge said, I think because he is absolutely right. I mean, one of the well, I suppose one of the almost unique characteristics about this crisis was unlike sort of the 2008 crisis or previous financial crises was it meant nobody could travel. And because you couldn't travel, you had to change your whole way of doing due diligence. And the first step for everybody, inevitably in those circumstances, is to say, we mm -hmm. can't look at new things. You know, we can't start building new relationships when we can't go out and meet people. And so Edge is exactly right to say that the focus, therefore, was on was on ensuring that those organizations we had invested in and those intermediaries we had used before had, ac had access to funding. I think one of the things, though, that has happened over the last, uh, uh, over the last uh, encouragingly, over the last three or four months is that even though we still can't travel, I think develop, the DFIs have, have become much more innovative about the way that they do remote due diligence. So we find now at CDC, our pipeline having sort of dipped precipitously uh, where, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the, of the, of the, of the uh, pandemic starting has now rebuilt again. And we're able to do it um, by being much more innovative about the way that we actually interact with people actually interact with people remotely so i think that's encouraging and we should i think from a from a uh, from a uh, the dfi community should sit, take some credit for the speed with which they found new ways to diligence yeah so that kind of uh, innovation quite nimble response response mm. and yeah new learning mm. the organization mm. helped has helped new ways of working yeah that's great to hear
Um, guys, we've just got a few minutes left. Let me ask Nick one more question, which has come through, which I think is quite interesting. Then maybe I'll, I'll give you a minute to each just to wrap up. Um, Nick, um, question three is, given the COVID context, will DFIs increase investments in social sectors such as health and education? I guess um, this really is a, a, um, a question around whether you know your sector priorities uh, and sort of economic development in a sort of Buddhist context, whether that's infrastructure or best private sector uh, aspects. Is it going to be a rebalancing back towards health and education or do you see that as as uh, remaining um, maybe a, a lower priority going forward? Look, I think that's a great question. But I think what we have to remember about health and education is in, in the vast majority of countries, they're considered public goods. They're considered to be something government should supply. The role of the DFIs is to fund private companies. And so, and funding, as we've seen firsthand at CDC, funding private companies in health and education is a controversial thing to do. Uh, so that because it means private schools, it means private hospitals, it means typically those org those institutions cater to the upper uh, uh, echelons of, of society rather than the uh, the poor end of society. So I think we've got to be realistic about that. Um, on the other hand, I think there are an increasing uh, there is increasing opportunity to invest again we're coming back come back back, back to this um uh technology change there's an increasing opportunity to invest in health uh, uh, health tech and ed tech and way thing ways of of using technology to reach in a cheaper more effective more accessible way the the the, the poor ends of the community so i think we've got to be that's where we need to focus our attention i think in terms of investing in more private schools and more private hospitals um, there's a case for that sometimes, um, and uh, but overall, it's ne it's not going to be the dominant part of a DFI's uh, portfolio. Yeah, I think also if we had a, a sort of took a macroeconomic view, of course, uh, uh, developing the private sector allows that tax mobilisation, which then allows governments to provide uh, the public goods like health and education themselves. Um, let's um, let's just quickly wrap up. We've just got one minute each. Um, maybe just like to make some closing remarks. Um, Chris, uh, maybe you would like to speak first. Look, I think the um, the reality here is um, this has been a, a, a huge shock. Um, I think that we are coming through it. I'm I am actually an optimist. Um, I, I think that we are going to need uh, some more delevering, and um, you know, CDC is very good at this. Uh, because they've had more of an equity focus historically than a debt focus. I think the European DFIs are going to have to become a little bit better at the on the equity side. Um, we are excited by some of the initiatives coming out of Europe, such as the EDFS um, Plus, uh, uh, which you know potentially, uh, if targeted in the right direction, could lead to a lot more uh, capital coming through um, and, and the Americans are, you know, upping their game with, with the DFC as, as well. Um, I, I think the venture space needs a bit more support. There's real shortage. And, and if Vera's, you know, coding, you know, uh, girls are going to get the support they need. Um, we need to get Africa to understand the venture space. Um, and the other end of the spectrum, um, where still there is a market failure is around the flow of capital into what I would call frontier emerging markets, which is Africa's a big part of, as opposed to the EM markets. So, you know, the, the market cap of the of the global um, EM space is something around seven and a half trillion dollars. 
the market cap of the frontier market, which includes a whole bunch of markets, which you know are not really um, uh, ODI, is um, you know is 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 sort of a hundred billion dollars. So you can just see the the scale that you know there are great companies in in some of those uh, in the, you know in those countries, um, but we have to get but people just don't focus on them. They don't know they're there. They there's no research on them. So. I would say we need a barbell approach, more institutional money flowing into the public side, and but equally a little bit more going on on the on the early stage side as well. Oh, okay, thank you very much, Chris. Um, Soren, would you like to make some closing remarks? I think you're on mute. Okay. Thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Judith. Uh, so I mean, so it's it's evident that DFIs need to continue to uh, to push uh, to be present and to uh, to work with companies uh, through the crisis, but also that we need to uh, we need to be prepared for the recovery that comes after, and and um, and um, that that's going to require uh, significant amounts of risk capital, so the kinds of equity investment that uh, that uh, Edge talked about, but also willingness to support developers and others that are going to supply the pipeline of projects that will be financed uh, in the in uh, in the recovery and uh, and i think we're going to have to be um, more bold as uh, as uh, development finance institutions to to be strategically directed i think that's clearly the case for sustainable finance uh, and um, and inclusive uh, finance or financial services, which are both powered, as we talked about earlier, strongly by technological developments and changes in pricing and available technology. These are going to be um, probably together with some of the um, the agri sector and other uh, other sectors that will benefit from freer trade on the African continent. These are going to be some of the sectors of of very strong opportunity, both for investment but also for impact uh, uh, through the recovery from the crisis and we're going to have to be very strategic about uh, combining our financing activities and the policy reforms that can supercharge this uh, in the recovery thank you very much um and nick maybe you'd like to make a final yeah, no, I agree with both uh, Edge and and, and Soren. Like Edge's um, uh, sort of description of a barbell approach, I think that's a very good way of thinking about it. As we go forward, um, I think as as we said earlier, I think DFI, DFIs have had a relatively good uh, good crisis so far. But as we go forward, it's all about rebuilding and solving the, those development issues that largely existed uh, before COVID. And it is a barbell. On the one hand, we've got to be more active on the smaller end. Uh, we've got to be more um, more of a catalyst in in helping new technology develop and address some of those key development issues. But then on the other end, you know, from a from a, a you know an infrastructure perspective, as as I said earlier, we still got 650 million people that don't have access to power. Without power, you can't have schools, you can't have hospitals, you can't have you can't have factories, you can't uh, you can't have large scale employment. Um, so the, the our role in that area is still as important as it ever was before. Okay, thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Nick. Um, so um, I think we'll wrap up as we're, we're just over time. Uh, obviously, we'd like to thank all of our panelists um, for coming today and for your very um, interesting comments. Um, just a quick comment on some of the themes. I mean, there seems to be some pretty good feedback um, that uh, DFIs and IFDIs, as, as Nick just said, had a good crisis. Um, and certainly the lessons of 208 have been learned and those were reflected in the ability to respond uh, and support economic uh, um, 
growth and social goals in the region um, over the last year. Um, uh, also, though, you know, continuing focusing some on the old themes, uh, particularly uh, macroeconomic fundamentals, ESG, we mentioned about laying down the foundations, uh, uh, you know, that allow you to be robust in this type of crisis situation and also recover more rapidly. Um, and probably most interestingly for um, uh, for the region, of course, the, the new new innovations and particularly in di digitalization uh, within the economy, both finance, but also in the private sector, uh, which, of course, is very much talked about and is probably a, uh, one of the, the uh, most important themes for um, economic accelerating economic growth and reaching the poorest in the region going forward. So thank you very much. Um, to the, uh, thank you very much to to our audience today. Um, it's, it was great that you could join us. Um, also, just to mention that um, uh, the OGI will be having another event. The next time, the next one will be on healthcare. Uh, if you were invited to this one, you will be um, cc'd um, on the invitation for that. And uh, meanwhile, uh, thanks again very much to all our panelists. It's been great to talk, and uh, we really appreciate your input. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.